we would just have age appropriate conversations about, you know, kind of like discipline and respecting authority. That was major, the first step. You know, what did your mom ask you to do? Well, I didn't want to do that. As a black male, I'm raising you to respect authority and you have to respect authority in your home first. Hi, welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Nisasha. And today, in light of a lot of things that are happening in the country, I am really grateful that our friend Antonio Wint is willing to come talk to us about his experiences being a black man in America right now, but more specifically, and I think we really want to talk about some questions about how you communicate also with your kids, because that's something that we haven't talked a lot about, or I haven't certainly seen a lot of media about. So I'm excited to dive into this conversation. Antonio, thank you for being willing to talk about this. My pleasure. Would you please talk a little bit about, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family? Yeah, my name is Antonio Went. I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. So that's, I think that's important because that's been a racially tense environment. Dude, you have um, no idea. We literally were just talking. Like, this is the third time St. Louis has come up, and we're like, we're going to do a roundtable in the fall about St. Louis because this, it's crazy I, the more we learn about it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that place is no joke. Definitely pretty intense. My mom moved to Denver, Colorado when I was about seven years old. I grew up in the Montbello neighborhood, Green Valley Ranch neighborhood in Denver, Colorado, which is predominantly, you know, African-American black neighborhood. My high school was 95% black. So gives you an idea of the history there. But then I went to Colorado State University and that was probably 95% white. So definitely some transitions into going from an all black environment to a majority white environment, which good because I think it prepared me for the real world in corporate America because corporate America is mostly white. At Colorado State University, I met my wife, Tamara. We had been married for a number of years, I want to say about 10 years. And then we had um, our son, his name is Zane. Tamara is white. Ironic since CSU is also 95% white, that my wife would be white, but <laughs> that's how it shook out. I went to school for landscape architecture, and I'm actually, I was really good at all the computer classes at, in my landscape architecture classes. So that translated to me eventually becoming CEO of my own IT uh, company. We're an IT managed services company based in Denver, Colorado, with seven employees. I mean, we're, uh, we've been pretty successful and been growing. So that's my story. That's awesome. Thank you for that background. I think understanding that you've lived in a couple of different scenarios helpful for the purposes of this conversation. Yes. And I think understanding I'm a black male currently in leadership position in a, with a diverse employee base, I think it has some relevance as well. We have black employees, white employees, Asian, female, male, all over the place. So it certainly gives me some insights into dealing with different cultures. So if I ask one question, this entire podcast, this is the one I've been waiting to ask. And people who've listened to the podcast for a while know that I have two sons and they're sort of on the younger elementary side. So what has been really difficult for me, especially with everything that's been in the news around Ahmad and the disparate impact of everything that's been going on at people of color is how to talk to my kids about this. Because, mm-hmm. you know, my older son saw Ahmad's name and was, you know, asking questions about who is he? What is this news coverage? And I have been trying to walk a fine line between making sure they're aware of specific issues that are going to affect them as they get older 
and not having them be terrified to go outside right now because of the coronavirus in general, but to pile, you know, the fact that they could be shot while running while black Mm -hmm. is something that I can't discuss with them right now. And I'm wondering how you talk to your son about that. And, you know, my husband has a very different viewpoint than I do. And I think because he lives it. So as a mother, I just, I want to protect my kids, but I don't know how. So I'm super curious as to how you've been discussing what's been going on with your kid. Well, just to give you some context as far as age, he's 10. So he's starting to get a little more mature and we can talk to him about some things that are age appropriate, I would say. From the time he started, you know, interacting with police and, you know, hey, I want to be a police officer and waving and noticing that they were law enforcement. I think that was probably around five-ish. We would just have age-appropriate conversations about, you know, kind of like discipline and respecting authority. That was major, the first step. You know, what did your mom ask you to do? Well, I didn't want to do that. Mm, As a black male, I'm raising you to respect authority and you have to respect authority in your home first. So for me, pretty strict when it comes to if your mother said something or I said something, you have to do it because we asked you to do it. And then as he transferred to getting a a little older, I started to explain some of the relationships to say, okay, like if you're in the street and an officer asks you to sit down on the sidewalk, you don't get to talk back and say, I'm not doing that. And I don't want to do that. If he asked you to sit down on the sidewalk as a black male, you sit down on the sidewalk, just like your mother asked you to sit still. So starting to draw some of those parallels between the respect for, you know, leadership and authority in the home. Now translate that to when you're out in the street. I want to make sure that you understand that. And of course, like I said, age appropriate. And then as they get older and start to have more conversations with me, as he said, hey, dad, what's up with this? What's up with that? After I gauge his understanding of what's really going on in the real world, that's where we open it up for, for larger conversations. One show that's been helping us a lot with some of these discussions is Blackish and Mixedish. We it's, love those. <laughs> yeah. It just makes it so easy because you're, you're watching, they're entertaining, and a topic comes up. And usually what I'll do is hit pause and say, do you have any questions or is there anything we should talk about around that subject? So it's definitely opened the door to just a lot of very, you know, what would probably a little more unnatural, kind of uncommon conversations now are very natural because they just came up through the television. So that's the approach that I've been using. I think also my wife, to some degree, would probably, you know, she pushes back on some of the more disciplined things because I think she doesn't see it the same way I see it. But I also understand that she kind of defaults to me a lot when it comes to that. She may feel like pushing back, but she also recognizes that I'm coming from a different approach that will will one day help him navigate some very tough waters. So I think it takes the time to express, hey, I don't necessarily think that's a big deal, or I don't necessarily agree with that, but I'll go ahead and let you do your thing because I don't see it the way you see it. I mean, you mentioned age appropriate a few times. And I Mm -hmm. think based on my experience talking to white people, the idea of age appropriate conversations around race is very different. Like how do you gauge, you know, because everything I've learned is that kids see race from the time they are itty bitty infants and they understand it. How do you gauge what that relationship between, you know, understanding difference and understanding that everyone shows up different and the value that society places on those differences and then the fear, like what just happened with the shooting deaths? Yeah, I think for me, it's not understanding age appropriate was listening to his descriptions to what's going on at school. Part of our previous conversations where we've kind of talked about what's going on in the education system, I thought, you know, maybe I am not 
addressing this early enough. So I asked him, hey, have you ever heard the N-word or has anyone ever used that word? You know, what are you hearing on the playground? And he stepped up and said, yeah, people have said this and people have said that. And I said, oh, sounds like I'm a little behind the, the, the start there. I need to get going. So we started, that's when I started to ramp things up a little bit based on his experiences so that he would understand and be able to navigate those waters as well. He, it reminds me of a conversation he had on, at the uh, school with a, a young man that he was picking people for soccer. And the kid said, you're not picking me. You're just racist. You're just picking all the, the white kids or whatever. And he just looked and everyone looked at him. <laughs> and the kid didn't realize because he's pretty fair skinned. He didn't realize that he wasn't Latino or that he wasn't, you know, that he was actually a black male also. So one of the kids were like, what are you talking about? He's just picking you because you're not very good. His dad is black. He's not racist. <laughs> it was just pretty funny. But once you hear those conversations, then that means that you'd probably need to start addressing, uh, you know, things that are related to skin color and what those expectations are. For me, helping him understand that this is very emotional. It's tough as a black parent to say this to your child, to recognize that some people don't see you as just being you. And some people don't see you as just being a young man, that just your very presence is threatening to them. And they see you as being older and aggressive and all these things that you're not, which just by looking at you, that's a tough conversation to have. But those are conversations that Black parents have had with their children for hundreds of years. And I can remember my conversation with my mom was about five, six. And she let me know that some people don't like me just because of my color or how I look. And she said, don't you worry about it. You just be who you're going to be. And that was my first introduction to that experience. With my son, because he's so fair complected and in the neighborhood that we live in, it's been a different experience, but definitely it's been a conversation that we've had to have that's pretty difficult and it's heart-wrenching for a you know, parent to just explain to your child, other than for no reason at all, other than just how you look, people may judge you. They may think that you are stealing something when you're not. You have a hoodie on, you're dressed a certain way and you have to look a certain way and act a certain way so you don't appear threatening to people so that we don't have to have a conversation with the police or that you don't end up in the hospital or one of your neighbors does something that they would regret later on. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, my husband grew up in Louisiana, so he was pretty much having these conversations very early. And he has always said that he's trying to raise the men that he wants my sons to be rather than sort of cater to the kids that they are now. And I think that is sort of the same strictness and the same discipline. It probably doesn't help that he comes from an army family, both parents in the army. So <laughs> you better believe there's a lot of discipline that happens. And sometimes yeah. it's hard for me to see exactly why. But we've started getting into the, you know, I want to be a policeman. I think, you know, looking at especially first responders now and how they see them as heroes, which they are in, in a lot of ways and with different communities. And then to sort of see that that might not be the treatment that they will see and that they will be treated differently because they are darker skinned and do identify as black. So that's great to hear that how those conversations have progressed in your family over time, because we're still, even my oldest is several years behind your son, but it's moving. And I see my husband have those conversations in different ways and not being black. It's harder for me to see how to do that at times. So some of what you talked about is super helpful. So it's interesting to see that my children who present as white Basically, you know, after I did the 2.23 in our neighborhood, 
you know, where were you? What'd you do? Or like, you know, talking about in honor of Ahmad and, and what had happened. And I was blunt. I was like this, I said, man. And then I said, actually, he was a boy. Like he was 25, was jogging yeah. and, and got killed. And, and their jaws dropped and they were like, oh. but to them and in our family, it's still something that happened to an other, right? It's not someone who looks like them. So I felt like maybe I'm scaring my kids too much, but I wanted them to understand why I have this podcast, why this conversation is important. And we are engaging in a lot of these conversations at home. I don't think they carry that trauma because it's not their lives that they're afraid of. And I would imagine it's a different approach you would have to have as a black family, a mixed race family with a black mixed race into it. Is that right? Like, I mean, otherwise it is fear if they know too much. Yeah, I think for me, all I mean, like I said, he's 10 now. So the five years of prep work, prepping for Ahmad's case, what happened, we talk about it. We've expressed that we look differently. We've expressed that you don't want to look threatening or be a threat. I've told him, this is, these are the things that we want you to do when you're interacting with people and when you're interacting with police. Because if they have a weapon, you know, there's no way to talk about it later. So we've said, hey, what we'd rather you do is comply and we can handle it in courts and talk about it later on if you felt like you were, you were done wrong. With the recent case in Georgia, I just had to tell him, hey, man, we've been talking about this for a number of years. We're going to run in honor of this young man who done nothing wrong, but was running through a neighborhood and appeared to be a threat to some men that were in the neighborhood. And they approached him with a weapon and they gunned him down in cold blood right in the middle of the daylight while he was going for a jock. And he said they were not cops. They were not. I'm like, nope, just some people that felt threatened by his presence. And he definitely was shocked. Like you could see it in his face that he felt, wow, like everything you talked about that we discussed, this just happened. And we're going to run in support. I did not show him the video or any images of that. I felt like that was too much, but I did talk to him and just say, tell him the truth. Because I felt like at this point, he's been prepared. We've been preparing him for it. It was time for him to know about a real world incident where this happened. I just had to take a deep breath. I think that was that moment of silence right there. Me too. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very powerful. And, and honestly, I had to take a deep breath before I told him because I'm looking at, you know, my son and I see myself and I see his innocence and I see his potential and you're looking at him and it's crushed. You can see it crushes them a little on the inside to feel like, man, this is really going to be my existence. Like this really happened. And, you know, you don't want to hurt their potential for growth or have them make them fearful of what they can be, but you want them to be prepared for what's really going on out there and what they could run into. Because if this happens and he's equipped, then he's more likely to come out on the other side and we can go to court and talk about it. But if he's not equipped and he's not aware, I have no idea what's going to happen because he's not viewed as a, as a white male in those situations. He's viewed as a black male and usually black males are, are viewed as more threatening in that type of situation. Misasha, do you have any more questions on the kid front before we move on to some other stuff? No, I was just thinking about talking to my husband and both of us are attorneys. So my husband's always like, I don't understand because we'll see some show or something and someone will be voluntarily letting the police search their car. And my husband's always like, have they never listened to Jay-Z? And he's like, well, I think it's also because every black man knows his rights in a way that no white person will ever, unless they went to law school, has that fundamental understanding of because you are so equipped if you've been, and I love that word they used, Antonio, because you need to be equipped to know exactly how to handle every situation that's coming at you, you don't have the luxury having that time or having that grace because how you're going to be treated 
you need to know before you even get out of your house into the streets or now in your house even. So a lot of what you were saying was really impactful for me. Is there anything, you know, for me personally, but I think, you know, some of, I don't know all the different skin tones of the people who are listening to this show right now, but not to put you on the spot, but is there anything aside from, you know, when you think about your kids' peers, the white ones, is there anything that the parents who are listening to this show can do even just a little bit? I mean, we've talked a lot about tell your kids not to use the N word, but is that it? Like what there's, I, I don't know. I mean, can you think either of you as parents of mixed race children who are going to be seen as black? Does anything come to mind? We can also scratch this if it's yeah. not. Yeah. What I would say is it's, it's so much more than just the surface. I know. It's more of a lifestyle. It's like, what do you teach and preach in your home? You know, when you're watching a show and you see someone treat someone unfairly because of their skin color or their sexual orientation or whatever, religious beliefs, political beliefs, do you stop that and say, stop? That is not how we do things in our household. That's not what our family name means. That's not who we are. Like, that is something that you do constantly, all the time. You reinforce that and make it a part of your daily life. And I feel like if you're doing those things, then you're setting an example for your child, your children, but then you're also putting them into a space when they meet other people. They've already been coached that we don't tolerate that kind of talk, or we don't believe in that kind of talk, or my family doesn't believe in that kind of talk, and why would you do that? So for me, I think it's more than just one thing that they would do. I would say make it about make it about something that you do all the time. Watch shows like Blackish and Mixedish. Just because it says Blackish and Mixedish and you're whitish <laughs> doesn't mean you can't watch it. <laughs> There's some very interesting topics for discussion. Don't wait till Black History Month to do Black History or any other month for Latinos or Asian Americans or whatever. You should teach diversity in your home across the board. Teach tolerance um, and acceptance because we're all different. I think people you know, they don't see it that way. What I've said to my son is, hey man, imagine if everybody in the world looked exactly like you and acted exactly like you. How boring would that be? It would be like, God, everyone's exactly the same. But then also think of diversity as one of the tools that we use to progress as humanity. Because all those differences and all those people, when we put those together, something happens and someone does it a little different and we, we get some steps forward. We don't make steps forward by everyone doing everything the same all the time. The differences are what allows us to excel as the human race. And so when you make that argument, people start to think about it differently and go, yeah, well, we'd like to progress as a race. Okay. And we should make sure that we're giving everyone the opportunity to grow and be the best version of themselves in the race. Because if we do that, then I benefit from that as well. Because if this person excels, we all excel. I love that consistency statement about being consistent about how you're talking to your family and to your children about diversity and race and all of that. Because I think I'm in the Bay Area and a lot of time we get a lot of lip service to equality and diversity, and but it comes in spurts. Like it's triggered by an event and people raise their awareness or give some money and then things just shift right back to how it always is. And the conversations don't really change except in that moment in a little bit. And so I think that the consistency of continually talking about this, seeing, expanding your horizons, looking at shows or reading books that depicts 
families not like yours, families different than yours, and continuing to have that dialogue is great. That's what we do in our house. That's what I really hope that everyone's doing because it is how we can get, especially this next generation, to have that mindset, not just in a moment in time or, you know, in a specific month or in a specific school project, but going forward. Yeah. Even if they are whitish. That was probably one of the best lines. <laughs> I love that so far. I think so also, Sarah. I wanna, there was one more thing. There are things that happen when minorities are not around, but people that are Black, women, whatever, are not around. As a male, I'm in some situations where it's just men around. And when you hear comments that are not appropriate and you just don't want in your space, I think you should stand up for it and say, hey, come on, man. Like, really? That's not okay. That's not cool. Or that was kind of rough or abrasive or whatever. I'm not going to accept that. So that person knows, I don't want to hear that. It's not acceptable uh, rhetoric. We don't want to hear it. A person that's white, I would say the same way. If you're around people and around your peers, there's no minorities around and someone makes a comment, stand up and say, that's not acceptable. In this community, it's not acceptable around me. I think you're a cool dude. I like you, but I don't like that. That's not cool because I think it sets the tone. If you sit in silence and don't say anything, I think it gives the impression that it's okay. And when you start putting that undertone in your community, I think it can lead to bigger things and manifest itself in another way. So stand up for what you believe is right. And don't be afraid to stand up for yourself and for the fellow people in your community when you see something wrong. I think that's so spot on because silence speaks so loudly also. So that's a great reminder. Thank you for that. Switching gears a little, and in all seriousness, I'm actually going to just put a pause in here. I think we're going to get, as soon as we jumped on, it gave me like a 40 minute trigger. So can we, I'm just going to stop this recording and then restart. So if we can all just jump out and then jump right back in, that would be awesome so that I don't run out when we're in the middle of questions. I'm probably going to have to jump off because I got to get the kids onto Japanese soon. <laughs> So, Japanese? <laughs> yeah, I mean, my dad's Japanese, you nice. know, I'm trying to get them. Yeah, they have Japanese first names, even though that totally blows every Japanese person's mind. Like, I don't know what's happening here. But, <laughs> um, so they got to live up to that at the very least. Awesome. So, yes, but Antonio, thank you so much. I hope you and Sarah have a great rest of the conversation. Thank you. It was really nice to talk to you. Thank you. It was nice meeting you as well. Good luck with that. Give your husband a break. Listen to what he's got to say. Trust him. He loves him too. Like, that's what I say to my wife. I'm like, look, I guarantee you, I love them just as much as you. I'm not yeah, going to no, hurt the kids. It's, it's okay. <laughs> I believe that. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Talk to you both later. Thank you for that part of the conversation. I think it's something that people haven't spoken as much about in light of everything. And obviously to me, Sasha, and to so many parents, it's so personal and so real. So yeah, it's very personal. My brother did a program up at UNC and it was called Speak Truth. He wanted to help people understand that we're all the same. I think when people see you different, you know, and they demonize you or whatever, then they see you as, oh, well, it's okay. I, people need to realize those emotions and how, what I care about my son and my feelings I have for my son are the same ones that they have. And if they can imagine themselves in the same kind of context, I guess, man, this is my child. Then it starts to hit home and people can go, yeah, that's not right. We don't need to do that. Oh, totally. I get choked up hearing people talk like that. I mean, I think about it for my own kids too. And that's why we need to keep having these conversations <laughs> at the very least to begin opening up that process for more people. But I wanted to talk a little bit about stuff that we had mentioned or we had spoken about, you know, ages ago when we first started talking about race, we were talking about running. And in this case, it seems like a really relevant conversation to revisit. Yeah. Could you talk to us a little bit about what 
goes through your head as you're preparing to run? Oh, the preparation of the run. Because <laughs> right? the white people go, let me grab my keys, my phone, and just go. Like, that's kind of, do I look cute enough, at least for a woman, right? And then I'm going to walk out the door, and that's it. I mean, and I think as a woman, people understand a little bit because I know women who won't run in the dark. They mm-hmm. don't run where it's isolated. Interestingly, the black women I spoke with say I'd rather run in an isolated area than run in a white suburban area because I feel uncomfortable. So there are definitely like some nuances associated with white people running depending on gender and then race. But as a black man, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, it's completely different. I think for me, it's first of all, it's usually planned. It's very planned. There's no spontaneous running going on. Usually for me, I'm going to let my family know, hey, I'm, I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to this is how long I'm going to go. They know if he's gone longer than 20, 30 minutes, what's going on. Definitely have on bright clothing. Even when it's cold, I try to avoid hoodies and wearing a hoodie appears threatening and menacing to some people. They see a black male running with a hoodie on. I try not to run in the dark or try not to run in twilight hours or when it's dawn because, uh, again, it's just not bright enough for people to see, oh, that's Antonio. Because, you know, our neighborhood's pretty social. A lot of people know you just by looking at you. So there's a lot of effort going into running and participating in a healthy lifestyle and also not appearing threatening in any way at all. If I see someone run, I'm running and they start to hinch up on their dog, you know, then I will cross you know, the street, go to the other side. I mean, obviously with what's going on now, you're, you're keeping your distance anyway, but usually my job is to avoid any sort of action that's going up here threatening to anyone. And that's pretty tough because sometimes you want to get up, especially in the winter months, it's not a lot of daylight hours and you want to go and get your run in, but you're also, there's just some things I'd rather not do. And with a mod, it's, it's just, you just feel helpless and you feel like there's no hope because he's doing what I would do. He's running during the day. He doesn't have a hoodie on. He's trying not to look threatening. He has running gear on. So it looks like he's running and still someone approaches him and attacks him. So what I said to my wife is how am I supposed to teach my son how to navigate that? Like I can teach him all the stuff I know about. Yeah. You know, run during the daylight. Don't wear a hoodie. Don't look threatening. Pay attention to the people you're running up on. If they look like they're uncomfortable because you're black, go to a different side of the street. Don't make anyone uncomfortable. Ahmad was doing all those things right. So it's really upsetting for me when I have to, when it appears someone's doing something right and you just feel so hopeless. I feel hopeless and helpless at the same time. Like there's no hope and there's nothing I can do about it. Very disheartening. So yeah, that's my standard uh, running procedure. Then also like running, sometimes it's you're fearful that you're going to have of overexerting yourself because if something happens, you want to make sure you have enough energy to handle it. So although you're running, you're also like, well, I don't run too hard because what if I have to run from someone's dog that they don't have leashed properly because, and that dog is not accustomed to being around people that are dark skin and he's lunging at you and I have to jump out the way. You know, what if something happens and someone wants to come out of car and fight with me and I'm exhausted from running? So you have to consider those things also. When you're running, you can't overdo it because if something were to go wrong, you'd be easy pickings for someone to, to jump on. Another thing is, depending on where I'm running and the time I'm running, I don't run on the correct side of the street. I'll run on the side of the street where I can see traffic coming towards me. So that if someone you know is approaching me that I don't like or looks uncomfortable, then I can have a head start on taking some action to protect myself. Again, those are all things that I think a black male does to protect himself 
anyway, but then protecting yourself on a run and teaching those to your family. That's a part of the gig. Part of another thing that bothers me is, you know, I've had situations, there's a way to handle things. With Ahmad, if they felt like he was a threat or something was wrong, he didn't have a weapon. Why did you have to have a weapon? Why did you have to feel threatened to the point where you, you pull out a gun? If someone were to come up to me and I'm on a run and they have a shotgun and they jump out and point the shotgun at me, I probably would respond the same way as Ahmad. First of all, you're not law enforcement. Second of all, you just jumped out of a car and you're pointing a weapon at me. I'm not just going to stay there. I'm going to protect myself, you know, right? So just the whole way that was handled, I just don't feel it's right. I've been in a situation in our neighborhood. If you recall, last year we had a bunch of break-ins, someone that was kicking in doors. Those door kick-ins hit home because as they started to circulate pictures of this young man, he looked very similar to me, like close. And I'm black. And I understand to me, I can tell the differences between black people. And I know some white people, they can't really tell the differences between black people. And I'm looking at this young man and going, man, he looks a lot like me. I don't know if I should be going outside. And even my wife said the same thing, babe, you got to be careful because that guy looks a lot like you. In that situation, people, you know, would come up and tell me, did you see that guy's photo? And I say, yeah, I've seen his photo and I'm staying inside because I don't want you guys to do something crazy because you think it, you know, (laughs) it's me or I'm that guy. To play on that, we had a young man in our neighborhood at that same time who was, didn't look like he was up to any good. And he didn't look like he kind of fit in the neighborhood. It just didn't look right. And a lot of the neighbors were like on edge. And they're like, look at that guy. You see that guy over there? What is he doing? And he was smoking and sitting and smoking. It was in an odd area. And they were going to call the cops and they were getting ready to run over there. And I said, hey, actually, let me go talk to him first. Because he was a black male. And I felt like I've been there before where you look a certain way and people approach you because you look a certain way. So I went and talked to him and said, Hey, what's up, man? How's it going? You're kind of in an odd spot. I haven't seen you in this neighborhood. Who are you here with? And he said he had some friends down the street that he was visiting. And I said, Oh, cool. We're pretty cool in this neighborhood. Who are your friends? Like we probably know them. And he couldn't give me any names. So I said, Hey man, I'm not trying to jump down your throat and mess with you, man, but what you're doing in this neighborhood and kind of you're hanging out, you're making us all uncomfortable. So can you just kind of move along or go to your friends or do whatever you got to do? And he said, sure, I can do that. And I said, okay. And I walked away. And the neighbor said, well, what happened? What did you, what happened? He's still sitting over there. What did he say? Say anything? I said, yeah. He said that he had friends in this neighborhood and that he was just hanging out. And they said, oh, okay, well, he left. And I said, okay, well, that's cool. I'm going to go walk where he came from and just see where he is. And he was hanging out in spinning spokes, just sitting there in a park that we have in our neighborhood and still didn't all add up. So I told him again and said, hey, man, I talked to you about this once not in this neighborhood. You don't need to just be hanging out doing this. We're really on edge because there's been a lot of a break-in. So I'm not trying to come down on you, but I need you to move it along. And I felt like, you know, how would that have looked if I showed up with a weapon and did the same thing, right? How would that have looked if he were a white male and I was a black male? Like if you change a lot of how that interaction happened, it could have gone south a lot of different ways. You know, I feel like approaching someone in your neighborhood that you feel like is not normally in your neighborhood that's a part of, you know, you living in your neighborhood. I recognize that. I've done it before also. But to take it to the point where you have a weapon and you're approaching the person in a threatening manner and you jump out, cocking the gun and making it, it's just not appropriate behavior. I mean, it plays into hierarchy. It plays into power. It plays into everybody's fear. Yeah. At the same time, we've talked a lot about the dangers of calling. The, like so many people are afraid of having that conversation you had with a person who kind of seemed a little like they didn't belong. Mm-hmm. So they would prefer to call the police. But the problem there is also 
we see what happens often when police are called in these situations. Yeah, there's actually a Blackish episode on that as well, calling the cops on Black people. And it's like, that's opening up a whole new can of worms just by doing that. You want to make sure you know what you're doing and recognizing that calling the cops on a white person in a white neighborhood, that feels different to the police than calling the cops on a black person in a white neighborhood or a black person in any neighborhood. The opportunity for something to go astray or, or just anything is increased because of the perceived threat of a black person. So I personally lean more towards with my neighbors and anybody. I mean, honestly, I'm not calling the police on you. <laughs> we're going to talk. I'm going to say, hey, man, you guys were pretty loud or, you know, whatever. Before it gets to the point where you're escalating the calling of the police. I'm just not going to do that unless it's warranted. So to your point, be careful. If you're calling the police on a black male, make sure it's for a good reason and not just because you feel he looks odd in your neighborhood. And if he looks that odd, go up and say hello to him. Don't feel threatened by me walking down the street. You're saying, hello, hi. There's nothing wrong with saying hello, hi. If the person doesn't say hello or hi back, okay, maybe that's suspicious, you know, but use caution. Imagine if it were you or your child walking down the street and someone just came up and called the police on them because they were walking down the street. How would you feel? A hundred percent. I mean, so going back to your earlier point about fly on the wall, like when you're in certain circles, you hear what happens. I still remember when the break-ins were happening, both on social media and in real life, people were like, well, let's all get in a car and drive around and find them. Yeah. And instantly I was like, no, do you know what yeah. could go wrong? Like that is not, yeah. and these were white men saying that they were going to go do these things. And I just remember being surprised, like, how can you not see how not appropriate that is, you know? Yeah. And here we are fast forward. And that was looking for a suspect. Like, this is just someone going, like these things happen. They escalate so mm-hmm. quickly unless you stop it really early on or you are aware of it. So yeah. Vigilante justice, mob rule. It's like, I mean, guys, that could have easily been me. You know, hey, well, hey, there he goes there. Hey, I don't know that guy. What are you doing? Oh, I live around a corner. No, you don't. You look like that guy. Hey, guys, my kid goes to this school. I live in this neighborhood. I know you guys. I know these people. Like, yeah, that was part of the fear. And honestly, when that was going on, I didn't go out as much. I wanted to make sure people didn't think I was a suspect. But then also, I just didn't want to deal with any sort of issues. There was a lot of fear around that. Then he was caught. And I said, he told you it wasn't me joking with my neighbor. <laughs> told you it wasn't me. But then also, whew, thank God they finally caught him because I live in this neighborhood too. And the guy was doing some, um, you know, pretty just blatant, crazy things like he wanted to go to jail. So yeah, no, that's true. When you talk about this neighborhood, though, I mean, it is a predominantly white neighborhood. How is existing, running, do, going out in the neighborhood, you know, belonging here different than belonging? You said you grew up in a heavily mm-hmm. sort of African-American black, as you mentioned, neighborhood. Right. What is it either being in the different types of neighborhoods or raising children for you, you know, in those neighborhoods? How do you process the difference of how you would walk through life, I guess? So growing up in a black neighborhood, everybody was black. It was great. So you're just like, I don't feel like threatening from just running around my neighborhood with people that look like me because they see me and they know, you know, well, this guy going for a run. So that was, it was actually not bad. It was comforting. You were really more worried about the police rolling up and considering you to be a suspect or you, the famous, you look, you match the description of someone who's done something. (laughs) And you're like, I wonder what that means. So that would, that in a black neighborhood, it's actually, that's the only fear. It's more of a police rolling up on you to say that you look threatening or you're matching the description. In a white neighborhood, that's not the fear. The fear is 
there's a lot of white people around that just see you as threatening. It's not matching the description. It's just, I don't know who you are. And, you know, we live in a predominantly white neighborhood. I probably know all the black people in the neighborhood. So who are you? What a lot of black people will say is they feel less threatened in the black neighborhood. And they feel more comfortable because, you know, there are people that are having the same challenges as you are. It's probably, I feel a little more tension, I would say, going on runs and being in our existing neighborhood just because it is predominantly white. And I want to set anyone off. That's a lot of weight for an individual to have to carry around. And it makes so much sense, you know, when people talk about, you know, black people being tired, they don't want to be the spokesperson for what it's like to have a black experience. Like there's always so much thought that goes into just existing and walking around in a predominantly white area or, you know, which is a lot of this country. And, you know, no wonder in some ways, I just think about the stuff with we're in the middle of COVID and so many people talk about, oh, black population is overwhelmingly affected by this and hypertension and the diabetes, all that. But the stress, I mean, just hearing what you said about the mindfulness you had and the the things you have to think about just to go for a run to stay healthy. Yeah. In some ways, it's it's like, it makes sense that there's a lot of body wear from all that stress. Yeah. And people have talked about that and they're like, well, black people are, you know, they have diabetes and some black people are obese and they're not healthy. And you know, now there's COVID-19 and there's a disproportionate number of black people that are catching it and dying than white people. And I don't think they realized that how built into the American system that is. When you live in a neighborhood where there's nothing but liquor stores and fast food, why is the cost of a salad more than the cost of a Big Mac? Like, you know, just built into our society it's manifested itself and you've seen it with COVID-19. I don't think it's necessarily, um, there's a genetic predisposition for black people to be attacked by the COVID-19. I think, yeah, it's obviously health related and related to lifestyle, but you also have to consider, well, how did they get into that lifestyle? What does their neighborhood look like? What type of foods are they eating? What's happening with their lifestyle that's causing this to happen? How are they being treated in the hospital compared to others? Black people fear going to the hospital because honestly, black people were experimented on historically. And so when a lot of you know, people that are not black here, well, why won't you go to the hospital? Why won't you go in and see a doctor? There's still some fear there because my ancestors have told me, yeah, there were incidents throughout our history where you know, white doctors did testing to see how things work on black people. There's some famous cases with uh, the syphilis cases. And when you think about that, and now we have this new COVID-19, and you know, it brings up a lot of very uncomfortable moments from our history where we're like, eh, maybe they're experimenting and trying some different stuff on us, and I don't really feel comfortable doing that. So I understand that sentiment, and I definitely can relate to it. When Black people say, hey, I don't want to go, this is why. I think people should know that, because a lot of people don't know that. They're like, what's going on with the Black people not going to the hospital, or what's going on with the, with the disproportionate numbers that are dying from COVID-19? you know, when you start to pull that thread, it unravels a lot. So just realize that's a really, really deep issue that's ingrained in this society from decades of oppression and just many different things that have gone on. But it's been enlightening. I've been talking to a lot of Black people. Yeah, you know what? We have enough things going against us to hurt us. And now our health is impacting us because of COVID-19. I mean, there's definitely been a resurgence to, hey, we need to, as a community, have some discussions about how our diet and what foods we will allow into our supermarkets, what foods we'll allow into our community, let go of the fast food, get rid of all the the soda pop. You know, let's have some conversations about that and start educating our communities and using COVID-19 as a reason to do that. That's great. I didn't realize that that, you know, I didn't think about 
I thought about redlining. I thought about people living in poorer communities because of the legacies that we have in our country. I thought about so many disproportionate number of workers or people of color who are still deemed essential worker, like they're out in the world, that sort of stuff. But I didn't think about the fear of hospitals and the experimentation at all. So thank you for bringing that up. We actually, I met, I was lucky enough to meet a dietitian and she's like a school lunch person and she's a black woman and she talks about disparity in in nutrition and how we need to eat better and teach the kids better. So I feel like I would love to talk to her about sort of that process of re-educating. I don't want to say re-educating, that's like the wrong word, but like, you know what I mean? Like making Mm -hmm. sure more people in our country are not only, you know, are aware of the impact of food, but also the difference in access in different Mm -hmm. neighborhoods to fresh fruits, vegetables, all that stuff. Because I've always joked about how ridiculous it is in this country that what you said, like healthy food is so much more expensive, but you go to the 7-Eleven in Japan, these little rice balls that have fresh fish stuffed inside of it are sold in 7-Eleven for like a buck 20. Right. And you couldn't buy that. Like it is flipped in Japan. The healthier foods, there are cheap options and you don't have that in this country. I think a lot of black neighborhoods we might understand that, hey, we can influence the products that are in our neighborhood. Definitely learn that from living in neighborhoods that are not predominantly Black is that it's a really nice supermarket. There's a lot of different foods in this neighborhood. You know, if you don't buy the garbage, then the garbage goes out of business, and then you can influence what goes into your neighborhood. You can influence the products that the, that the grocery store has in your neighborhood by protesting and saying, we want more of these kind of foods, fresh fruits and vegetables, in our grocery store. You can do that. You have the power to do that with your money and your mouth. Make sure it's well known and make sure that you put your money where you want it to go and you can influence that. But, you know, we understand historically that there's some foods that we've eaten that haven't been the best for our health. Although historically we've done that, I think a lot of people are definitely letting some of those things go because before you had to eat chitlins or hog mogs or all these crazy foods is because we were given the scraps from off the slave master's table and we had to do to make it work, eat it. We don't have to do that anymore. You can change what food that you eat and what you put into your body and you you can influence that. So let's use that power and leverage that to move past this COVID-19 crisis in the black community and let's grow wiser and stronger as a people. I love that. Vote with our wallets. Exactly. Marlon King did that with the, the bus boycotts. He knew you could hit them in a wallet and they'll make some change. I love that. I feel like at least this is sort of, there's hope for change, you know, small steps, but that if it comes from a personal level, right, it's one thing for the government, which I'm not really sure what's going to happen there in terms of implementing change and helping change some of the, the bigger issues. But if we can commit at least on a personal level internally to make small decisions that'll change, that will all as a group really hopefully lead to greater systemic change from the bottom up. And it seems more sustainable that way. So thank you for talking with me. Is there anything else that I'm missing or that you want to talk about before we hop off? Yeah, I have one thing I want to mention because I've, there's been some talks in our community that the undertone of the national leadership has led to some of what we've seen, especially with the mod that some people feel emboldened and feel powerful and feel strong enough to be able to do this in the public and that they won't have any repercussions or any, you know, go to jail or anything like that. I think there's some truth to that. But I want to make sure people understand that the Obama administration had the same things go on while he was president of the United States. There were these things were going on. These things have been going on for hundreds of years. So although I do feel like the message and the undertone of leadership does filter down and people tend to follow the tone of the leadership, I want to make sure they understand that don't think this is 
all related to that. This has been going on for hundreds of years. Black people have been doing having to deal with this for hundreds of years. Um, and it's something that America has had as an undercurrent, and we need to stomp it out as a community, as Americans. We've obviously come together for COVID-19, and we understand that we can work together as a team to protect each other, and we've all come together, and we've said we're, we're not in this alone. So if we say that to our neighbors and say we are not in this alone and use that same mentality with racism or any prejudices, we can use that as a team to stomp it out. We've already proven that we can do that with this COVID-19 crisis. I do think it's become a lot. It has always been happening. I think what's happened is that people have video cameras on their phones. Exactly. (laughs) There's a lot more cameras. That's all it means. This is happening all the time. It's happened everywhere. I've had uncles tell me stories. I've seen crazy things, but now there's video evidence. Just people are just floored. You're like, yeah, it goes on. Yep. And then I think exactly. Then therefore we know what's going on. So let's, as you say, band together. We at the podcast live by the motto, we rise by lifting others. We've got to stick together. We've got, and we can make change together. So again, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for your time. I appreciate you having me on. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 